0: Welcome to another episode of Own Your Choices, Own Your Life. And today we are speaking with Paul Nadeau. Paul is a motivational and keynote speaker and mental health strategist. He has an incredible story. Paul is a former hostage negotiator, international peacekeeper, and special victims unit detective. His life reads like a Hollywood blockbuster, but it didn't start off easy. He was severely abused by his alcoholic father as a child, but he made choices not to follow in his father's footsteps, and his choices have led him to help others in the most profound ways. He is now a best-selling author, motivational speaker, and thought leader, to name a few of his accomplishments. This is an incredible conversation. We talk all things, change, PTSD, thought mindset, how to see and focus on where you're going and how your story is what makes you who you are. So embracing that allows you to take those gifts and make that impact in the world. This is an incredible episode. Welcome to the show today, Paul. I'm so thrilled to have you here.
1: Oh, thanks very much, Marcia. It's always nice to be here.
0: This would be a really good conversation. There's so many things in your notes and things that I've looked at that I'm like, okay, this could go a lot of different ways. So let's just see where it's going to (laughs) go. I want to ask some questions first so people can get to know you. Where are you from?
1: Uh, I am originally from Oshawa, Ontario, Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, which used to have gentle motors and uh, i am currently now in toronto ontario canada deciding whether or not i'm going to stay because like so many other people um, now that so many things are shut down and, and the world is changing, maybe it's time for me to make a change and move somewhere hmm. a little quieter, maybe on a sunny beach somewhere.
0: I don't Ooh, know. Oh, does not yeah. sound wonderful. <laughs> we, this is one of the first, I have so many people that I interview who are from the States in different areas. So it's funny to actually talk to somebody else who's living in the same weather that we're <laughs> living in right now. Oh, I have a question for you. Do you, what is the most impactful book you have read?
1: I think it has to be Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. That's got to be that and The Alchemist. You know, everybody says The Alchemist. But I I think, yeah, Viktor Frankl's book really hit me in, uh, in significant ways when I read it. And it really was talking about mindset, something that I'm passionate about. And in Viktor Frankl's book, he explains uh, so many great nuggets about how we can take control of our mindset. So that, yeah, that's my answer. Mm. That's my. Fi- I, I think that's my final is answer. Is that your
0: final answer? <laughs>
1: I, th- I think so. I think so. <laughs> <laughs>
0: can, can I ask you, do you know roughly how old you were when you read it?
1: Oh, wow. I think I was in my 20s, uh, my early 20s when I read it. Uh, I think I just joined the police department Mm -hmm. and uh, I was into motivational stuff, and um, I just joined the police department, and I think it was shortly after that that I read it, and I just thought, wow, and I have an audio copy of it. I have a physical copy of it. I lost it in in a couple of moves and reordered it. It's just like, am I reading it all the time? No, but I like to go back to it from time to time and just look at some of the quotes because they're so powerful.
0: The quotes are incredibly powerful, like incredibly. And it it is a book that comes up regularly on this podcast. When I ask people that is one that they will refer to. Do you have a quote or a mantra or something that describes who you are?
1: Hmm. Ah, a quote or a mantra. Very good question. Mm -hmm. Um,
0: and there's no right or wrong. It's just no, whatever no. pops in your head.
1: Yeah. You know, the only thing popping into my head is that I I am a better version of the person I was yesterday.
0: Mm, that's that's and so good.
1: not as good as the person I'll be tomorrow.
0: Okay. Even better now. That's really, that's really really good. I love that.
1: It's a three-part. Yeah. You got to think about it. It's past, present, and future. You know, I'm going to mm-hmm. talk about past, present, and future uh, later during the podcast, but I like that one.
0: Mm-hmm. I actually think that that's a perfect one for this. Can I ask you, what is something that drives you? Like, what lights you up? What is something that fuels you to do what you do?
1: Helping others. That's the fuel right there. Um, my background was such that uh, I didn't get the help that I needed um, early on uh, in my uh, youth and childhood, and uh, when I finally discovered how to save myself, I also recognized how important it was to reach out and help others and that's what makes me passionate i i do so much to try to help others to make the world a better place to make their world a better place and to leave this world a, a better place than when i first got here
0: yeah oh, i absolutely think that's beautiful i have this big mantra that i believe that once we figure out solutions to a story, a problem we have lived, that it's almost our obligation to pay that forward because we can make a difference for someone else when we didn't have that support. And that's just really what it sounds like you were saying. I love how you said, we've spoken about past, present and future. And you said that you there was a point where you had to learn how to save yourself because that support wasn't there. You were in that space. Can you take us back to a little bit of your past and what you experienced that really did ultimately make you who you are today?
1: I certainly can. Uh, I grew up in a very um, unstable home. My father was a violent alcoholic who uh, beat my mother, my brother, and I up, um, and, and they were bad beatings. Uh, there was always um, anger in his voice and we were walking on eggshells. And I just remember, uh, you know, being beaten and, and uh, but I was his favorite. I was his favorite and I was terrified of him. Mm-hmm. When I'd go to school, I would act out in school because it was my way of releasing um, what I had this energy inside or just wanted to be seen and heard. Everybody wants to be seen and heard. So I was seen and I was heard, but not in a good way in school because I was a, a little brat and uh, some of the things that I used to come up with, it was just uh, crazy. Like, for example, one day I bring in this carton of, uh, of milk. It was an empty carton of milk. Uh, it was summertime. I'd collected as many grasshoppers as I could during recess, brought the carton into class. And five minutes into class, I would open the carton. And 10 minutes later, we had... Well, we had a class that was jumping around, uh, you know, we were little grasshoppers ourselves. So, you know, but but then I would be very disruptive and go back home. And I I remember, well, I I think was about seven years old after a beating that my father had had laid on me. I was on the ground and I remember looking up at him and thinking to myself, when I grow up, I want to be a policeman so that I can arrest you and people like you. And that was a, th- a thought that I had. Seven. I, yep, seven wow. years old, you know, mm-hmm. just like. And so I started playing the part of a detective with my friends, made, you know, little fake badges. And we did all this kind of stuff. And uh, my father never gave me the chance to uh, to arrest him. He killed himself when I was 17. And uh, I still became the police officer at 21. By that time, I had a passion for it. In grade seven, and seven seems to be a number here for me, Marsha. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know why that is, but in grade seven, I was this little brat. Um, I, I was being bullied at school. I was known as the, you know, the bad guy. The I never applied myself in school. I didn't know how to study. I, I'm surprised I actually went from one grade to another because. My marks were so low, they were in their 40s and maybe 50s or whatever, but I assume that it is likely the teachers didn't want me in their class uh, the next year, so they just graduated me. And I was in a Catholic school uh, back in the 60s, Catholic school, uh, nuns, nuns who knew judo. And these nuns it's, knew, oh yeah,
0: oh yeah. Was it's fl- okay. No, my husband went to a Catholic school and he's like, oh no, the nuns used to hit us. Like, just <laughs> it's what they did.
1: It, it is, it is mm-hmm. what they did. And they particularly liked hitting me and, and flipping me. It was, it was I, I studied judo after that and karate. Man, they were good. But um, it, <laughs> on this one particular day, uh, I, I remember in grade seven, uh, one of our our teachers, uh, uh, he came up and he announced the entire class that we were going to have a test after the weekend, and he expected everybody to pass except for you, Nado. I already know you're going to fail.
0: I can't even fathom teachers saying that, but I I do remember hearing things like that when I was younger. I do.
1: And this wow. is back. This is back in the '60s, where uh, mm-hmm. you know they could have thrown me out a window, and they probably got away with it. You know, like mm-hmm. it's very, very different than it is today. But when he said that, and he centered me uh, out in that way, it, I think it was the first time that I really felt ashamed. Uh, the students were my my classmates were looking around and laughing at me. I was. I was liking oh. girls back then. And, you know, mm-hmm. here's this bad boy, uh, you know, uh, uneducated individual that's being told, hey, you're going to fail. And, ha, 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 how funny is that? Well, it wasn't. I went back home and I cried and I locked myself in my bedroom. And I remember uh, doing something that I was unfamiliar with. And that was. Looking through the material for the test and figuring out how do I study, and for me, that whole weekend was was spent behind the doors, kind of repeating it over and over and over and over again. And I remember on the Monday when I wrote the test, um, I felt pretty good about it. You know, not not certain because Mm -hmm. I I was conditioned to fail. When people tell you that you're a failure, that you're not good enough. Uh, and they they beat you down, whatever it is, words, thoughts, whatever, sometimes you learn to be helpless. And sometimes you, you believe the uh, BS that they're giving you uh, and you condition yourself to be a failure. And I had done that. I was a conditioned failure. And uh, I had written this test and as was customary in his classroom, what he would do is he would, uh, he would Call the student with the lowest grade to the front of the classroom. It was the walk of shame.
0: I was and just re- going to say, please don't say he called the lowest first. Go ahead. Oh. He called the lowest oh.
1: first. It was me. I was there. I, you know, it was always me. So I, on this particular day, he calls and I'm about ready to get up, but it's not my name that's being called. And mm-hmm. uh, second person, third person, fourth person. And I'm starting to get curious and, you know, heart is beating is like, okay, two thoughts. Number one, you did pretty good, Paul. You, I, you, I think you knew the answers on that. You know, uh, I was mm-hmm. doubting myself uh, because I wasn't conditioning myself to to succeed, but I was doubting me. But I also had this two these two voices in my head. You did really bad, Paul. Oh, you did okay, Paul. So I'm just kind of waiting for the verdict, eh? <laughs> halfway, yes. halfway through the class, then- everybody's mm-hmm. starting to turn around at, to me and they're giving the shoulder shrug. Why aren't you up there? And I'm I'm giving them the shoulder, shoulder shrug uh, again and saying, Hey, I don't know. And uh, so again, on and on it goes. And now there are only three people left in that classroom to pick up their papers. My cousin, Lise, who was a Browner, we called mm-hmm. them Browners back then. And, yeah. Oh yeah. I remember yeah, that. And Giselle, she was a Browner. And those two girls were always competing for the highest mark in the class and uh, a little old me. And so the next person to be called was my cousin, Lise. And I was called after that.
0: Wow. 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 So that must have been a very interesting experience for you, for the teacher as well, really, like hopefully. Um, but for you, in a sense of you decided that, no, that's not the way it's going to go. Right. or you decided to apply yourself differently just to see where it would go.
1: Yeah. I was embarrassed to the point of action. And sometimes life has to embarrass you to the point of taking action. You know, you you, you look at your uh, your circumstances and, and you just have to become aware of where you are, where you want to be. And if you want something bad enough, you just have to go and give it a shot. If you fail, you fail. But if you don't give it a shot, you'll never know. And for me, I didn't take the walk of shame that day. I walked up to that desk and I picked up that paper and I felt like a million bucks. That, Marsha, was the defining moment, I think, in my life where I started to believe in myself and what I was capable of doing. And from that point on, I, I worked hard. Like, I'm not smart. It takes me five times longer, I think, to study something than it takes a lot of other people. Uh, And a lot of the content that I study, I forget. Uh, It's Mm -hmm. just, I think I did have a learning disability back then, and I might still have one now. But the fact is, it doesn't stop me from moving forward, and it never stopped me from moving forward, never stopped me from uh, accomplishing the things that I have.
0: That, that is such a powerful story. And I just think it's even more powerful because you were in grade seven, you were younger. That was something that, you know, obviously built a pattern in you and may, just built a affirming belief of what you could do if you applied that. And I, I love, do you, do you almost see that as a point where you're chiseling away at that condition failure that no, I can actually I can achieve this. It doesn't matter what my teacher, my dad, what anyone is saying. Like, I can actually do this if I decide. I know that you were younger, but does that make sense?
1: It makes perfect sense. I think we all have to take control of our lives. It really is. Uh, nobody's going to come and rescue us. You know, you know I, I think about this rescue mentality that a lot of people have. They're thinking, okay, well, somebody's going to come and and uh, take me away from all this. I'm going to get married and everything will be fine. You know, like, or... or somebody out there is going to do it for me. And that's the wrong mentality to have no matter what your circumstances are. You have to stand on your own rock. You have to stand on your own greatness. Uh, You cannot be pulled up by someone. You can be helped by someone, Mm -hmm. but someone cannot take complete responsibility uh, for making you into the greatest version of yourself. The responsibility is yours to take, and uh, and I teach this to so many people. It's like, come on, you are so capable if only you try. And I tell people there's so many opportunities out there. How do you want your your life to end? Do you want to be on your deathbed, visited by the ghosts of missed opportunities, who say to you, "Dude." Wow. <laughs> Wow, what did you do? We gave you all these opportunities. You did nothing. You did nothing with them. Or, and you, you regret, you go, yeah, I should have done that. Or you want to turn around and say, uh, be visited by the ghost of rock and roll and say, hey, man, that was a blast. What a ride. You did it all. Man, oh, man.
0: <laughs> I want B. I am I me want, too. <laughs> I <laughs> and, don't want B.
1: And it is within each and every, every one of our reaches to want B and to, <laughs> and to manifest B, to make B happen.
0: Yeah. I, there's so much magic in what you just said. And I do think a lot of people are waiting for someone to come and fix it. I think they are waiting for the answer to drop in a book format that is done with all of my steps. They're expecting it all to be laid out perfectly and so afraid of making mistakes that it's like you you're just, but you're not even starting. Like you have to allow yourself to fumble through, to try to see what you can do and what you can create because. You have to build that belief and then you just keep stacking, right? And keep stacking and more and more on it. So you obviously did that from a young age. And as you did that and you went through it, your life did go in a sense the way that you had wanted to, you wanted to be, become a police officer, but not just a police officer. Right. You, yeah. Tell us about that. Okay.
1: Yeah. Um, when I joined the police department, my intent was to become a detective. Uh, th- <laughs> those were the games I was playing when, w- as I was a kid. I didn't want to be in a uniform car. Not that there's something wrong with it. I just didn't. That wasn't really why I joined the police department. I wanted to become a detective. And uh, when I joined, um, I was put on a platoon of uh, kind of deadbeat cops. Uh, let me put it that way. These guys were so... Uh, bitter and, uh, and so down on their work and on the police department, what had happened was there had been a hiring uh, freeze for a long period of time. And so when I joined... I joined with a new cluster of people, but there were a lot of senior people that we were assigned to. And this platoon that I was put on had these bitter police officers. So night after night, I would get in the cruiser with these bitter cops, um, and some of them were really spoiled. And they would tell me, Paul, what are you doing in a job like this? The police department ain't gonna support you. These people are hard out here. You know What are you doing here? And when you, when you are around toxic people People mm-hmm. who talk that way, you start to believe again the stuff that they say. So, two, three years into my job, I'm thinking, I I got to get out of here. I, this is not the career I I thought it would be. I think I'm going to become an actor, and uh, because I've been doing some acting as well. But um, then I I remembered who I had become, and why I had joined the police department in the first place, and I decided to take some action. I went to my staff sergeant and I said, please do not put me in a cruiser with another cop. Leave me on my own and let me do my stuff. And if you do, I will produce for you. And uh, he said, okay, he put me in a single man unit. And I got arrests every night, impaired drivers, break and enters, uh, people on warrants. So I used to go hunting people on warrants, it was fun. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd go through the warrant box and look, Oh, ooh, robbery, Oh, oh, he's here in Oshawa, I think I can hunt him down. And so I would jump around and, you know, just go out there. And at three o'clock in the morning, I'd get coppers, uh, you know, I what are you doing? You're on the radio, we're trying to get some sleep.
0: <laughs> oh, sorry. Oh yeah!
1: Oh no, I'm not kidding. I get these. I get these messages. Like they, they would. stop de- working. You know, oh, you stop working. You're you're breaking our our, our beauty sleep. I'm sure I'm certain it's not like that anymore. But anyways, I I but I was a producer, and so after uh, four and a half years of doing this, an opportunity came for an opening in the detective office in in the juvenile division, and up until that time in in the history of our police department, anyway, did, they wouldn't offer a detective's job to anyone with less than seven or eight years on. I had four and a half uh, mm-hmm. and I put in for it. And I remember the uh, the person who was in charge of the uh, juvenile division, he knew uh, how hard I worked. And by this time, my staff sergeant was right behind me. Yeah, you deserve it, Paul, and that kind of stuff. And I felt good about it. But the guy in front of the, or in charge of the juvenile division called me into his office. He says, you know, he says, uh, I really like what you've done and and uh, I'd really love to offer you this job, but I have this this applicant here who's got 10 years on and uh, I think we have to go with him first. And I just looked at him and I said, Charlie, that's okay, sir. You know, you choose who you think would be best in your office, but thank you very much for seeing me, giving me the opportunity. Please keep me in mind. A week later, I was in the juvenile division and i was a uh, i was a junior detective and then uh, from that point on i graduated from being a juvenile detective into investigating adults and then i uh, had a An opportunity to join a major crimes division dealing with uh, victims of sexual assault and uh, sexual assault and child abuse investigations. And I hopped at that. And um, it was just, uh, you know, such an eye-opening, wonderful opportunity for me to help so many people. Uh, I became a hostage negotiator uh, at, at about the same time so I was doing hostage negotiations whenever I was called upon to do them hostage and crisis negotiations later I became an international peacekeeper um, and I was um, I was actually uh, um, assigned to go down to Jordan during the Iraq war where my life was almost killed by a terrorist and that's another story but um, yeah I left and and I, I the point is i created uh, all the opportunities i wanted to in, in, at work because i wanted to try so many different things and i and i got good at what i was doing so it was a tremendous career
0: you created so many different opportunities there. And I just, I find it so fascinating because I do believe it has to take a very special person to be able to work as a hostage negotiator in special victims units because you are dealing with very difficult stories, very heavy stories, very hard stories. It's got to take a very unique, special person to do that. And I'm just grateful that you went that way with what you did because it, because we need that. That's there's definitely certain skills that are required. Can I ask you, what skills do you feel you learned over the years that led to you being so good at your job? And what skills did you take from that job that you continue to use now?
1: What a what a great question, Marsha, because while you were saying it, I thought, you know what? Wow, I'm going right back to my childhood with this one. Um, my dad, uh, again, before he killed himself and while I was still a young person, at the age of 12, he told me to go get a job. Um, he wanted me to pay room and board. Mm, and 12. Uh, 12, yeah, I had a paper route, wasn't good enough. So, At 12 years old, I'm going out looking for work, believe it or not. I looked a little bit older than 12. I got one as a busboy, you know, like Mm -hmm. a busboy and just cleaning up tables and stuff like that. And uh, I developed the ability to walk up to adults and ask for what I wanted, ask for work. I was never without a job. I, I realized that the more I, I asked, and you know, the the more I communicated well, and you know, and gave them the reasons why they should hire me, uh, I was never without a job. At 16, I had a car, I had money in the bank, uh, I had three jobs going, and everybody's coming to me going, "I can't find work, I can't find work, I can't find work," and I'd say, well, "Man, <laughs> you ain't looking hard enough. You ain't looking hard enough. So you got to look for work." And uh, mm-hmm. it is the ability, the ability to communicate. And because I, I had so many adults uh, in my life, people who had given me these jobs, and people who you know, kind of started to acknowledge who I was, I was able to communicate with uh, people much uh, older than myself. And that was developing the ability to communicate to communicate and connect. And so mm-hmm. that's one of the greatest things that you can do. And uh, it is a skill that has served me. Uh, I also uh, discovered at a very... Early period in my police career, that in order to get cooperation from people, for example, from criminals or, or from uh, reluctant witnesses or reluctant um, uh, victims, that you really have to kind of negotiate in their world. Uh, by that, what I mean is that you have to put yourself in their shoes and you really have to try to uh, empathize with them and communicate at a level where they're going to want to work with you. And I discovered that we are more similar than we are different. And how that has affected my life, oh man, it has helped me out so much because when I walked into an interrogation room, for example, to talk to a murderer, I I realized, okay, there's a story behind this. Everybody has a story. And I wonder what this person's story is. They have a story. I'm not walking in to talk to a murderer today. I'm walking in to talk to a human being. So why don't I sit down Take what they have done away and kind of set it aside. It's, I'm not talking to a murderer. I'm talking to you, John, you know, and I don't know anything about you. I want to tell you something, though. I'm here to treat you with dignity and respect, and I would hope to have the same in return. And uh, they'd put up their hand, my lawyer told me not to say anything. And I'd say, it's okay. You don't have to say anything. Uh, It's your right not to say anything, but let me get to know who you are. Because right now, all I've got is what people have said about you. I have no idea who you are. And you know what? Right now, so far, I can see that you're not jumping at me. So there's probably some good still left in you. But let's just talk, you know? And that's how it would work. And the more that you connected with them, you can see the body language completely open. And so uh, that's, you know, when somebody gets to know you, like you, and trust you, It's amazing what they will give you. And so Mm -hmm. those are the skills that kind of uh, made me who the cop I was and uh, and the person I am today. Uh, It was just a a matter of necessity at first. Hey, Mm -hmm. I have to get a job. Uh, You know, like I have to work. Uh, I have to go out like a grown up and and be a grown up at 12, Mm -hmm. 13, 14 years of age. Yep. And then that was it.
0: Well, we're not too far away from each other in age, because I'm also relating the fact that um, when I think I remember being 11 or 12, and my mom saying to me, we lived in a very small area. And she's like, would you like to get some clothes for back to school or for anything? I said, yes, because we better get a job. And I'm like, where do I get a job? I'm like, 12. (laughs) I don't understand. I washed dishes. I washed it. There was very little time in my life that I didn't have a job, like very little time. And it was everything from you just, you name it. So I can so understand in a sense of what you're talking about there, but there's a lot that I did learn during that time. I love what you just shared and I already wrote it, but it's funny. You, you just said it there. And I think it's really important is that a couple things, every person has a story, right? Every person has a story we are way more alike than different. This is where I think that we are missing as humans right now. We are so much more alike than different. And if we actually live by that, then we can live with more empathy. We can live with less judgment. We can not put those stories and judgments on other people. And I'm assuming that is something that you have, you've really have learned how to live by.
1: Mm-hmm. I have yes, it really is important. Again, you know, we do not know uh, what people are going through. What we see on the outside is not a reflection always of what's going on on the inside. We just have to look at Instagram to know that we we see so many pretty people with great lives, and that yet you you actually, if you do find out what their lives are really like, they're broken, just like every each and every one of us. Mm-hmm. And and um, there there's a, a beautiful lyric in Leonard Cohen's song. Uh, He wrote a song in 1990s uh, called Anthem. And one of the lyrics that really struck out to me, and I used this when I was the opening speaker for the Canadian Mental Health Association two years ago, Leonard Cohen wrote, there is a crack in everything, but that's how the light gets through. And when we look at each and every one of our lives, we have all suffered our cracks. And some of us have suffered our breaks. And we have to recognize that we are we are imperfect people living in an imperfect world. We all have our cracks. It's okay. That's what life is. That's that's the human condition, the human experience is to suffer cracks. But on the same token, not only do you have cracks, you have a light. And this is where leonard cohen's there's a crack in everything but that's how the light gets through you are the light and if you can shine your light into the cracks of others imagine what they can do in yours you know when you give of yourself to someone when you give you know some uh, help uh, an ear whatever it is it feels good it helps mm-hmm. to it, it helps to to fix your cracks And we have to recognize that everybody has a story. I may be talking to somebody whose mother, father died of COVID. I may be talking to somebody who just found out that they've got stage three or stage four cancer. I may be talking to somebody who just lost their livelihood as a result of this pandemic. Or 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 a life of a friend or whatever, we just never know. So why don't we start asking what other people's stories are? Why don't we just start? You know what we're doing is we're asking for people's stories. We need to do that as a as a human populace. We need to get out there and just say, hey, what's your story? It's okay to share. You know, let's be vulnerable together. Let's play this call uh, this game called vulnerability. You well, know, you have and
0: no idea. I love that word. <laughs> Yeah.
1: I do too. You know, I, yeah. yeah. And so many people think of it as a dark emotion. You know, they don't, I might look bad if I say something or nobody will ever understand me or whatever it is. You know, they, they associate it to loneliness, to to loss, to whatever. Yet, I think you and I are on the same uh, page as this one, Marsha, because I'm going to want to hear what you're um, uh, what your opinion about vulnerability is but i see it as a gateway a, a, a bit a bridge to connect people to to ignite relationships to love and and to to matter you know that's how i see it
0: oh i, I couldn't agree more with you i honestly couldn't and i think that vulnerability is something people are very afraid of yet the number one thing they're craving is connection. We're craving connecting with people. We're craving to meet people who are like-minded. We're craving to, you know, have more connections, especially now, especially now, because so much of our life is on Zoom or online, but we're craving that connection, but we're so afraid to show up and be seen. You can't have both. You have to be able to show up and be seen. And people are go, what will they think? I'm like, who is they? Who are they? Who do you <laughs> keep saying they? Who is that? And you know what? I always say that the people that you are meant to impact and the people who are going to impact your life the most are literally right there waiting for you to show up. Like they're right there waiting to see the real you, like not like not the, not the, not the you that looks like they've got everything all together all the time. The real you.
1: Hmm. Yep. Very well said. You're right. We, um, we are suffering from a disconnection, a social disconnection, uh, a physical disconnection right now because of COVID-19. And it is, uh, COVID-19 is not only taking people's lives, it's taking pe- people's mental wellness. And it mm-hmm. is uh, it is inflicting post-traumatic stress in, in a lot of people, uh, which regrettably will carry on long after the pandemic is done. Um, yes, we, we are social creatures and we need to reach out and, and connect, but we could, just can't do that now. So we've got to find alternatives. Mm-hmm. Zoom, for example, writing letters, phone calls, whatever it is, let's not... Let's not stay disconnected because I I asked the question um, a couple of months back. I said uh, on, on Facebook, social media, I said, here's a question. COVID crazy or COVID creative? Which category do you stand in? And uh, most people were saying that they were going COVID crazy, um, that they were burnt out, that they were suffering, and uh, very few said COVID creative.
0: What a great question. And I'm glad people answered, honestly, that makes me very sad. That makes me very sad in a sense of where people are. I've had, I mean, when this first started, I really dove into my business and online and, and, and coaching podcasting and all these things. I looked at it as an opportunity I went, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going all in. I can't tell you how many people said, why do you, why are you doing that? Like, why don't you just watch Netflix? Why don't you do, because I know, like that's a very slippery downhill slope for me. That is not where I want to go. No judgment. That's just, it doesn't mean I don't allow myself that time, but I know that I did not, I wanted to use this time productively and our mindset's everything, right? You talk about this. Our mindset is everything. It is work that we have to commit to on a regular basis. I work with a lot of clients who think that once I have done the work, that it's easy and it's automatic. And I'm like, no, you're like, you're a daily work in progress and that's okay. There's nothing you're it's, it's not easy and it's not always done. You have to commit to doing that work and whatever you do in your life is a reflection of the work that you do on yourself first. So Mm -hmm. I know you talk a lot about like believing in yourself and you mentioned something earlier about, you know, rising above toxic people and being, mindful about where you're putting your energy and who you are with and surrounding yourself, what kinds of tips and insight can you give to people who say they really do want to change their thoughts? They do want to believe in themselves more. They don't have a clue where to start.
1: Mm. One of the first ways of getting uh, a grip of, of transformation or transition transformation, getting rid of the self-sabotaging thoughts is to be aware Mm -hmm. that they, that they are there. Uh, Imagine that you are digging a hole in your backyard and it's about six uh, feet deep and and, uh, you just keep digging and digging and digging. Um, If you don't put the shovel down and take a look at what you're doing, you'll keep digging deeper and deeper and deeper into the hole. Because what is the analogy there is that the hole is the one that we're digging uh, ourselves when we're not policing our thoughts. If we're not policing our thoughts and we are allowing our negative self-sabotaging thoughts to, to happen, we're digging that hole even deeper and deeper and deeper. The more our self-sabotaging uh, voices in our heads keep talking to us and we just keep digging and digging because you know we're not listening and we're not tuning into anything else, we just keep digging because they're, they're the ones making us dig, then we're going to dig a hole that is going to be that much more difficult to get out. The idea is to be consciously aware that you cannot have two thoughts, two dominant thoughts at the same time. If I told you that there was a big pink elephant in my room right now, there's a big pink, right here, there's a big pink elephant. Can you think of anything different than the pink elephant at the moment? No. At the moment, that dominant thought, you're imagining what my pink elephant in my room is looking like, you know? Mm -hmm. And, uh, And that is your dominant thought for the moment. Well, we've got to turn the switch on that. We've got to be aware and police the thoughts that come into our mind. And then we have got to turn the channel because not taking action and not policing our thoughts will lead to us believing the negativity that we tell ourselves. I can't do this. There's no way I'm ever going to get out of this. I'm going to die. There's so many things. Well, no, turn the, you know, there are different ways to turn the channel on that. Uh, The moment a negative thought comes in, for some people, um, I've heard uh, they call their voices a different name. So if Bob were to jump in my head and say, hey, Paul, you're not going to, I'm going to put my hand up and I'm going to say, Bob, don't want to hear from you right now. Uh, really get out of here. I'm going to focus on something better. I got to say, go for a walk, but Bob, don't come back. Come on. You know, you're not welcome in here anymore. Uh, you know, I simply don't want to, I don't want to visit the poor me hotel right now. Gosh, I know so many people who have taken up residency there and it's like the Bates Motel. Some of them may coming back. And when you think of Hotel California it may look like a nice place, but you ain't getting out. So, yeah. Yeah. So drop your shovel, be aware of your thoughts, turn around and say, okay, wait a minute. Okay, there's a way of dealing with this. I've got to, you know, maybe I have a an elastic band around my wrist and I snap that band just to say, okay, stop, stop that thought. You know, it's like stop the craziness. You gotta stop the craziness of the crazy voices. Because if you don't listen, if you if you give in to the crazy voices, you'll you'll get crazy. And and your life will not be a life of quality. And we all want a happy life. Let's, well, of let's course. be <laughs> yeah. Oh,
0: absolutely. I love that we can't have two dominant thoughts at the same time. And that's such a simple concept, but it's so true. It's so, so true. And when my limiting voice comes up, I get to a space where I used to be really angry and yell at her of like, just stop what you're doing. Now I laugh at her and I'm like, okay, cause I'm not going to resist her. Like it's, she's just there. And that, that she's always going to be there. And I look at it and go, yeah, yeah, I'm fine though. I don't need you. I'm good. Like, I'm good. Don't worry. So it's what I choose how, because I was angry and beating myself up constantly for that limiting voice. And then I went, okay, whatever you resist is going to persist. We're not going to resist her. We're going to laugh and go, thanks. You helped me for a long time, but I'm good now. Like, I'm good. Mm -hmm. I don't need Mm -hmm. it. And so we don't, I think, I think you're so bang on there. And the fact that awareness is so important, how fast can you call it out? How fast can you be aware that that's there to shift that and to shift that thinking?
1: Well, yes. And one other thing too, that a lot of people I don't think are aware, they don't pay attention to their bodies enough. And what I mean by that is that as soon as they, well, before, uh, one of the self-sabotaging hostage takers. I call them hostage takers in my book. Um, what Before they grab a hold of you, you might even feel them coming. Maybe mm-hmm. there's going to be a tightness in your chest, you know, like uh, I just feel a little uneasy. Oh, there he is or there she is. Well, like, hey, you know what? You can't do that. Why are you even trying? You know, like a I felt you coming. I felt you coming. It was in my chest. You know, I felt you coming. And it's one of those things like be aware of of what your body is telling you. Be aware of what your messages are and police them. You know, why am I feeling this tightness? Oh, I know what's coming. (laughs) Time to turn the channel. You know, let's tune into a a more pleasant. uh, Let's get some nice music on. Let's light a candle. Let me go for a walk. Let me call. Change, change. Mm-hmm. Slap, slap the uh, the wall with your with your pa- the palm of your hand and say, "Stop it!" You know, mm-hmm. whatever it is for you. You, you you had a name for yours and like yeah good 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 and I you, did. you knew I it. had
0: to I had to go that way and so when people say well that's easy for you and I'm like oh god no we we converse regularly <laughs> like she's she shows up all the time I just don't let her stay I just like I'm good I don't need you so it's it's however whatever you need to do but awareness is definitely it you made mention I do want to talk about your books but you made mention um and I love how you say this hostage to, your, to yourself like being hostage to ourselves and i'm almost it's so ironic cuz i'm i'm laughing i'm looking at the picture up there with the handcuffs i have said for a long time that we put shackles on and we're mad because these shackles are holding us down. But the ridiculous thing is, is we're the ones that have the key. Like we actually have the key to the shackles, yet we're mad at the world because we have shackles on. And it's recognizing that. So I would love to hear how you have worded and your explanation of being hostage to yourself.
1: Yes, thank you. Um, being a, a former hostage negotiator, Uh, I started to examine what is a hostage. And when you look at people who are seized by force, you know, whether it is a a robbery that's gone uh, wrong or a domestic violence, or uh, maybe you're traveling in a country and somebody's grabbed you as a hostage because they want a ransom or whatever. The thing that all these people have in common is that they don't have control. They cannot make decisions on their own. They are hostages to an external force. They're hostages to an external individual who has uh, life and death um, uh, control over them, and they will listen, and they will submit. And along with that listening and submission comes, you know, uh, the Stockholm Syndrome, learned helplessness, a lot of that. The difference uh, now With ourselves and taking ourselves hostage is that we take ourselves hostage when we give in and believe those self-destructive messages that we tell ourselves. When we start to believe uh, the that to the point of immobilization, and you put it very nicely. Uh, You said the shackles we have the keys, but we shackle ourselves. I call it also creating uh, a prison of your own making, you know, and you lock yourself in voluntarily. This is your choice. Nobody's putting you in the box. You're putting yourself in the box and it is preventing you from asking that person out, asking for that raise, um, you know, going out and doing this, trying a new business. You know, the hostage takers of your mind, you know, you're, you're, you're the landlord. You're, and it's almost like you're letting these bad tenants in, you know, and, you know, you become a hostage yourself. The book behind me is called Hostage to Myself. It was, uh, my that was my um, my words coming out, uh, my life, um, how I saw the, you know, the physical hostage as opposed to the mental hostage and what we can do to get ourselves free from that state. I, when I self-published that one, I thought maybe if hopefully a couple of hundred people will buy the book, you know, and I think 40 people that I knew bought the book, Mm -hmm. but one person that I didn't realize was going to buy the book was an editorial director for one of the biggest publishing companies in the world, Harper Collins, who invited me on my birthday in 2018 to have coffee with him, at which time he pulled out my book and said, we want to publish this around the world. And I said, "Yes, yeah. And so now it's published under the title, take control of your life. And, um, the, the, it's a simple concept, folks. Uh, we have to police our thoughts. We have to be aware. And we do have to take responsibility and accountability for doing the work to free ourselves. As Marsha, you said, you have the key to unlock those shackles. And it takes work. And at first, it may not be easy. Sometimes you have to take a look at your life and you have to really uh, examine it. Uh, for what it is and for where you are with it right now. Self-examination is so important. And I think it's it's a habit that we should all get into. I, I, I encourage people to take a sheet of paper, draw a vertical line through it, uh, you know, once every every two weeks or something. On the left side, you say, what's going right? and the, uh, On the other side, you say, what's not? You know, and then you take it brutally honest with you yourself and you take a look at it to see it, it creates that awareness. What do I need to cut out? What do I need to work out? What can I celebrate? Hey, I did really good here. Celebrate myself. It's just a number of things and tools that you can do to get yourself out of that hostage state. Also, a lot of people, they look at events in their lives that were unpleasant and they say, oh, that happened to me. That happened to me. You know, it was really bad. It happened to me. And, uh, oh, it 15, 20 years, but it happened to me. Mm-hmm. And I like to give people the opportunity to look at it a little bit differently. Sure, it happened to you, but did it also happen for you? Mm-hmm. Ha- I was abused by my father. But had it not been for that abuse, I never would have been a a cop. I never would have gone on to save lives. I never would have gone on to help people. So that kind of happened to me and it kind of happened for me as well. Um, The same can be said about, uh, you know, uh, my divorce. You know, that happened for me, you know? You have to look at the events and kind of say, what good came out of that? Or how can I possibly look at this situation differently? One of the things that we do that is really bad is that we attach meaning. We are meaning-making machines. We attach meaning to everything. Uh, if somebody comes and says, "I don't like you," oh, what does that mean? Oh, oh what did I do? Uh, you know, all these voices are coming in, and you know, oh wow, did I do something? I'm sorry. You know, like that kind of thing. And it means, um, hey, yeah, a whole bunch of things. You know, that those insecurities come up or whatever. But really, at the very beginning of our lives, life was empty and meaningless. Mm-hmm. A- and life is empty and meaningless. And I, what, Do I mean that it's empty and meaningless? No. What I mean is that it is empty until something happens. And then it's at first is meaningless until we attach a meaning to it. So we better take a moment to attach the right meaning to what happens to us. So, an event happens. For example, somebody that you know and love and trust, you know, is angry with you and they're shouting at you and you're going, oh, how do I defend myself from this? Take a moment to say, okay, what's the right meaning here? Where's this coming from? I know I don't deserve this, but, oh, they must be going through something. You know, I'm wondering if the meaning here is that they need to talk. I'm wondering if they're really angry at me. Maybe they're angry at themselves. You know, that kind of thing. For example, you have a you, you just met somebody and and you're dating you know, or, or you went on a date and you like each other. So if you exchange numbers and uh, so you text the person of your dreams and you say, hey, really loved meeting you and I would like to see you again. And then 24 hours go by and they didn't text you. And you're thinking, what did, did I do something wrong? Again, as those voices, what did I do? What did I do? And then you're thinking, OK, well, I'm going to go out and I'm going to date somebody else or I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that, you know, only to find out 24 hours later. I dropped my phone in the toilet. I'm so sorry. I have, it took me 24 hours to get one. I had no way of getting a hold of you. I am so sorry. Hey, I really did enjoy meeting you too. And you're I'll, by this time, you're out with somebody else. You're you're angry, it's, but
0: it's the meaning. It's the meaning that we attach to everything. That is yeah. that is just so so good because I like I will say to clients all the time that you know we can't love and appreciate who we are and hate everything that happened to us. We actually can't do both. And I know that that's, that there are definitely challenging circumstances we've all lived through and it's hard to see that it happens for you. I, that was a very triggering thing for me for a long time. I'm like, what do you mean for me? Why would I ask for this? But then I had to change the way I looked at it in the sense that, you know, so when something does happen now, it's like, what is this doing for me? What is this showing me? What is this making available? So when you ask different questions, you do get different answers.
1: Hmm. And one one just um, to, to uh, reply to something that you said, yeah, why is this happening to me? You know, all, all that kind of stuff or what did I do to deserve this is, is something else that a lot of people, uh, you know, they put the guilt and shame on their shoulders. Mm-hmm. Uh, victims of, uh, of crime, for example, um, somebody who has been raped may begin to say, well, if I hadn't dressed this way, if I hadn't gone to the party, if I hadn't accepted that drink, you know, it's all this guilt and shame and guilt and shame and guilt and shame. Um, I'm reminded of the movie Good Will Hunting with Robin Williams and Matt Damon. Um, such a beautiful uh, uh, story, and and you know the scene I'm going for. It's mm-hmm. where Matt uh, and uh, and Robin are in the room, and Matt's still angry at the world, and uh, you know why did uh, you know why was my you know uh, stepdad or foster dad always doing this and doing that, and, uh, and and Robin Williams character says it so beautifully. He says, "It's not your fault." it's not your fault it's not your fault and it was that repeated message that reminded matt that he did nothing to deserve what happened to him it wasn't his fault and there was such a, a beautiful release when that happened and i i was crying you know yeah, just thinking that's such
0: a oh that's such a good point and such a beautiful movie and a great explanation of this honestly i love i love everything that you're doing and how you are just you're taking You're a great example. You're taking all the lessons that you've learned, you apply them to what you've done, and then you continue to build on that and continue to pay that forward. So I I really, really thank you for all the work that you're doing, because honestly, I just think it is incredibly beautiful and powerful work. Where is the, oh, you're welcome. Where is the best place for people to connect with you, find your books? I know you have, you're in the works of one right now, right? Another mm-hmm. one. Yeah. So where's the best place for people to connect and find all of that information?
1: Well, um, bookstores, when they get uh, opened again, Open. will we pro- we'll probably have them. I know airports did as well. So if you're traveling, when you're traveling, and we can't travel right now. Anyways, when that ever happens, you might find my book in in. uh in one of those uh, places, but you can also find it on just about every online book uh, um, store out there. It's uh, it's throughout the United States. It's all over the world. Um, awesome. It, yeah. And uh, Amazon uh, carry it as well. It's called take control of your life by J Paul Nadeau.
0: Awesome. I will make sure everything is in the show notes. I'm just, I can't wait to read it myself. Honestly, I'm just excited to look, I look forward to it. I have two questions for you that I want to ask you. Number one is: What impact do you personally want to create in the world?
1: I want to remind everyone of their personal value and power. Um, the impact I want to make in the world is is just getting people to trust uh, in themselves and to uh, and to really fight for themselves. You know, like we we all have a voice and confidence is such a Character builder. And a lot of people are suffering from lack of confidence when all it takes is just believing in yourself that you can do something. And wow, does your world ever, ever change? That would be, that would probably be one of the impacts I want to make. Just remind people. That. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I do love that. And I think that along with confidence, it's people want to know where's the easy way to build confidence or I don't have any. And I'm like, you have to start. You just have to start. You have to let yourself try something. And we build confidence by doing, right? It's a verb, it's action, you have to start somewhere.
1: Well, you know what? Yes, we do, you're absolutely right. I tell people something too. Um, Start your day um, Mm. purposely, purposely. Start your day purposely. When you wake up in the morning, most people kinda just leave the day to chance. We um, we spend more time clothing our bodies than we do going into the closet of our minds and picking the right attitude for the day. Some people will sit there half an hour the night before, what outfit am I wearing? What am I going to do? Okay, I look good? How's my hair? You know that kind of stuff. Well, Mm -hmm. how about going into the closet of your brain, because in your brain's closet, there's two sides to this closet. Regrettably, on the dark side of the closet, there is fear hopelessness, sadness, regrets. There's all kinds of these negative things. But on the right side of your brain, there is hope, there's love, there's wonder, there's fascination, there is power, there's everything. So take a moment to walk into the closet of your brain Pick your attitude. Today, I'm going to be positive. I'm going to be positive. And then go in front of a, a mirror. And if that's the mantra you're going to use, use that mantra. I'm going to be positive today. I'm going to be very positive. And you say it with passion. You say it with such passion. I'm going to have a great day. You set the tone for your day. Don't let the guy who's going to cut you off or stand in front of you in the coffee shop or bump into you. Don't let them dictate how your day is going to be. If you Make a conscious effort in the morning to pick up whatever attitude, the positive attitude that you want to wear, and then you use those positive mantras to set your day. Today's going to be a fantastic day. Watch the difference. Watch the magic. You you start making this into a habit. You'll be amazing. Amazing.
0: I, I love it. And I'm going to say it with that accent now. (laughs) I love it. I love it. You are constantly reminding people that they do have personal power. And I love that we are not hopeless and we are not shackled to our story. Now our story is just part of us. It doesn't define us. It's just part of us. And the more we can really live that way with intention and choose those thoughts from the beginning of the day, that is like, we become so much more powerful. Love that. And
1: remember, remember, folks, if you're going through something really hard right now, Mm -hmm. you can ask for help and you can get help and you can help yourself. And remember, whatever it is that you're going through, maybe in a year or two, that story you'll be able to use to help somebody else out. That could be a story that just defines something. You could write a book about that story, whatever. Mm-hmm. It doesn't always have to be a bad story. Yeah, it could be bad while you're experiencing it, but, but you're not going to be in it forever. You've got mm-hmm. choices.
0: That's beautiful. Thank you so much for that. I have loved this conversation and you've given so much value and shared with everyone. So thank you for being here. I have one more question for you. What lesson in life are you most grateful for? huh,
1: <sighs> what lesson in life am I most grateful for? I think it is that I can stand on my own two feet. Mm-hmm. I was, I was, um, I was pushed out there. And, uh, you know, instead of stumbling and falling, I realized that I could stand and run, you know, so, yeah, I think that that's one of the things is that I can stand on my own two feet, and I can run if I want, I can even climb and jump and do all guys. of stuff. Yeah.
0: Any of it. Any of it. Oh, thank you so much for being here today, Paul. Honestly, this has just been fantastic. Fantastic.
1: Thank you for having me, Marsha. I really appreciate it. And good luck with everything that you're doing. Keep being a spark and a light in other people's lives, your, your coaching and everything that you're doing. Keep being fantastic. Keep being that light. Uh-huh.